0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the table. My name is Matt Moberg. Thrilled that you are with us tonight. We are in the midst of this series called Bear Fruit, where we are looking at the fruits of the Spirit and what it looks like if your story is saturated in the story of Jesus. These are the different things that ought to be coming to the surface. We have talked about, Maggie. What have we talk about? Patience, love, peace, joy. love, patience. joy. That's four. The fifth one that we're going to talk about tonight, fruit number five, is kindness. We're going to talk about kindness. Now, in the spirit of both kindness and the graduation season that we're in right now, I was at a grab party today. Anybody else at grab parties today? A couple more. Great. Super. Uh, My child actually just graduated preschool. He was, I think, (laughs) only the 732nd Moberg to do that. So we're really proud of him. Really excited about that. But in the spirit of graduation season, I want to start this uh, moment here with you by reading to you a speech, commencement speech, that was given by the writer George Saunders in 2013 at uh, Syracuse University. And he's talking about the question of um, what do you regret in life? Now, looking back, like, what are the things that come to mind when you think, I wish I could have a mulligan of that moment, I wish I could do that over? Here's what Saunders said in his speech. So this question, what do I regret? Being poor from time to time, not really working terrible jobs like knuckle-puller in a slaughterhouse. And I don't even ask what that all entails. No, not really, I don't regret that. Skinny-dipping in a river in Sumatra, a little buzzed, and looking up and seeing like 300 monkeys sitting on a pipeline, pooping down into the river, the river in which I was swimming with my mouth open, and getting deathly ill afterwards and staying sick for the next seven months. Do I regret that? No, not so much. Do I regret the occasional humiliation like once when I was playing hockey in front of a big crowd, including this girl that I really liked, and I somehow managed, while falling and emitting this weird whooping noise, to score on my own goalie (laughs) while also sending my stick flying into the crowd nearly hitting said girl that I liked? No, I don't even regret that. But here's something I do regret. In the seventh grade, this new kid joined our class. In the interest of confidentiality, her her convocation speech name will be Ellen. Now, Ellen was small and shy. She wore these blue cat's eye glasses that, at the time, only old ladies wore. When nervous, which seemed to be pretty much always, she had a habit of taking a strand of hair into her mouth and just start chewing on it. So she came to our school in our neighborhood and was mostly ignored. Occasionally teased. Your hair tastes good, that sort of thing. And I could tell that this hurt her. In fact, I still remember to this day the way that she would look after such an insult. Eyes cast down, a little gut kicked, as if having just been reminded of her place in things, she was trying as much as possible to disappear. After a while, she had drifted away, hair strands still in her mouth. At home, I imagined after school that her mother would say, you know, how was your day, sweetie? And she'd say, oh, fine. And her mother would say, did you make any friends? And she'd go, yeah, yeah, sure, lots. Sometimes I'd see her hanging around alone in her front yard as if she was afraid to leave it. And then they moved, and that was it. No tragedy, no big final hazing. One day she was there, and then the one day she wasn't. End of story. Now, why do I regret that? Why, 42 years later, am I still thinking about Ellen? I mean, relative to most of the other kids, I was actually pretty nice to her. I never said an unkind word to her. In fact, I sometimes even, I'll be mildly, defended her. But still, it bothers me. Here's something that I want you to know to be true. Although it's a little corny, and I don't quite know what to do with it quite yet, If you were to ask me what I regret most in my life, the first answer that comes to mind, the truest answer that comes to mind, are all of the failures of kindness. a powerful speech. It goes on, but the idea that the thing that I regret the most are these failures of kindness. And as he's kind of talking about it, is that you have some things coming to your own mind. Those moments where you saw that kid that you kind of knew that was being bullied and you didn't know what to do. You didn't say anything, but you also didn't intervene. Failures of kindness. What is it about us that keeps us from being kind? I mean, it's a basic action. I think universally we would agree that that seems to be the right course of action. Let's be kind to one another. And yet it's a struggle, and yet it's rare, and yet it doesn't seem to happen, especially today. What is the thing that keeps us from being kind? Probably a lot of different answers, but I wanna look at one particular answer with you tonight. The text that we're gonna look at is in Luke 14. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Luke 14, 25 to 27. Very encouraging word. The Dr. Luke tells about a moment. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, "'If anybody comes to me, "'it does not hate dad and mom, wife and kids, Brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. The word of the Lord. That's a fun text, isn't it? If you're in the market for a life verse, might I suggest you lean in right now at this portion. You might be able to find something you're looking for. It's a strange moment that Luke is writing about here because just try, if you will, to picture this in mind. Jesus is walking down the road. There is a large crowd that is hovering in his shadows, and they're juiced about everything that he's saying, excited about everything he's doing. They want in on the movement. And all Jesus has to do at this point in time is turn around and sign them up. Make them members. Do what you can. Not complicated. I mean, say what you will about the evangelicals, but they understood that when the bait has been bit, all you have to do is set the line. Jesus, turn around and tell them about joy. Tell them about Tim Tebow. Tell them about uh, the, how the rush of reading a good left-behind book. <laughs> tell them about Chance the Rapper. Tell them about Mumford. Tell them about Creed. Tell them how the cool kids like us now. Jesus, it's not complicated. Turn around. The bait has been bit. Set the line. Instead, Jesus turns around and he says, Okay, you guys, now that we have, we have some time on the road right now, do you mind if I ask you a question? Do you like your parents? Oh, you do. You're going to need to stop that immediately. You, sir, in the back, see you're with your wife. Still love her? If you intend to come with me, if you intend to follow me all the way to Jerusalem, I'm going to need you to knock that off as soon as possible. It is this baffling and bizarre moment. And on that text alone, you can only imagine that that crowd was filled with a lot of Dr. Phil's. (laughs) Very concerned, confused, not sure what to do with this. It's a hard moment because, at least upon first glance, we didn't know that a prerequisite for Jesus coming into our hearts was to make sure that these other people left first. We didn't know that we had to say goodbye to others. But again, I mean, upon first glance at least, it reads pretty straightforward. If you're coming after me and you don't hate your people, you're a poser. That's all i got for you guys tonight. Meg, you want to come up with the words of institution now? <laughs> Should we move on? I think the reason why this text is so hard for us and the reason why the church has tripped over it time and time again is not because we struggle with hatred or having thems. I mean again, if we just survey the past few years it becomes very clear very quickly that we have no problem having thems. Our country is is falling apart right now because all we have are thems. They're the problem. They're the problem and they're the problem. We're not above hatred We're not above having thems. But these people, they tend to not be they. They're not our thems, by and large. I mean, yes, family can bother us from time to time. I mean, I'll let you know that this was my grab party. You'll notice my dad flaunting his bare chest underneath a blazer, as if that is a socially acceptable thing to do. Family can be an issue at times. Dave Moberg, anything you want to say about that wardrobe? Okay, let it lie. In hearing a lot of our stories collectively, in hearing stories about people's families, I know that families aren't easy. I know that families can leave more wounds than leave you feeling warm. I know that not everybody's family has been a great, enriching experience. But as much of a struggle as families tend to be, by and large, While they are both the people that we can't live with and the people that we can't live without, the can't live without tends to outweigh the can't live with. Because they're our family. There's actually a reason why that is so. In 1981, there's an ethicist by the name of Peter Singer, and he introduced to the world this revolutionary idea that sought to explain how our morality gets made. What Singer said is that al- although it looks to the outside in like morality would be a very complex and complicated multi-step process, it actually happens in a one-two step. It's not complicated. We know exactly what it looks like and how we understand what a moral, moral faculty, how it comes to be. What he says is that the first step looks like this. The first step is the process of classification that happens when we are young, where we're able to name who is our kin and, and who are the creeps. Who are our siblings and who are our strangers? Who are our friends and who is from Iowa? Being able to separate the two. Where do we belong? The people that we belong to. This is a natural part of our psychological development and we see this instinct emerge in young babies when they're going through the first opening stages of stranger anxiety. Let me give you uh, an actual example of what this looks like. This morning I spoke at Awaken Church in St. Paul. And Lauren was there, and Graham was there, but Wyatt and Sawyer were too good to be there, so they weren't there. They didn't support their dad like you'd think they would, week before Father's Day. It's unbelievable. But Graham was there. Graham is six months old or soon to be. At the end of the service, we have people coming up to the front who I do not know, let alone Graham doesn't know, and yet they immediately want to hold Graham, and Graham allows it. Shocking, I know. He doesn't protest on any level. He just lets them, his body go into their arms. They kiss him. They're holding him. They're cuddling with him. And there's no problem whatsoever. Had Sawyer, my three-year-old, shown up at that service, and you tried to put your hands on him, he would put his hands on you very quickly. (laughs) He would tell you to get back. I don't know you. Like that. That's a ludicrous song, isn't it, Christian? Okay. The difference, obviously, between the two boys is that Sawyer is at an age now where he has gone through the strange ringside and he knows who his people are and who his people are not and he wants to be with his people. And don't you dare try to judge my three-year-old son because you and I are no different. I had you guys do this years ago but I'm gonna have you do it one more time. I want you to take out your phones right now and I want you to open up your call history. I want you to survey the past 10 calls that you have made. Now, when you think about it in a country as diverse as ours, different ethnicities, different uh, sexual orientations, different gender identities, different political inclinations, we are very diverse. And on top of that, when you think about this moment we're in where connectivity and accessibility are at an all-time high, As you look at the past 10 calls that you've made, do the people that you call, do they reflect the diversity of this country or the insularity of your kin? When you look at the 10 calls that you have made, are there people in there that have a different skin color than you have? Are there people in there that practice a different religion than you practice? Are there people in there that wanted a different president than the one we got. Oh, no, that's not the right question. Different than you wanted. That's what it is. Oh my gosh, man. Pull it together. Are there people in there that reflect the diversity of this country or the insularity of your kin? Or was Aristotle right when he said that we are just attracted to the similar and the familiar? That like, likes, like. It will forever be that way. I had this moment a couple of weeks ago when I was dropping Sawyer off at his school, and he was, he was good to go that morning. I mean, we had a great bowl of Applejacks. We seemed to be vibing on all levels. He had bluebirds on his shoulders. He was excited about the day. Then we got to his classroom, and everything changed immediately. We got to the doorway of his classroom. Inside were the students that were waiting for him to come on in, And immediately he spun around, and he grabbed my thigh, and he just started weeping, saying, Daddy, don't go. Now, at first, this was doing wonders for my self-esteem because all the other kids were like, I don't care if my dad goes. They can all leave. But Sawyer was like, my dad needs to stay. And so that felt very nice at first, but then it got weird (laughs) because it wasn't like just a moment. It actually lasted for a little bit. And Sawyer... um, Eventually, the teacher had to pry him away. I believe there was, some, there was some offering of treats and such. But as I was walking away, I had that first moment where I was going like, man, what? what's going on with him? Because we were good like five minutes prior to that. Like, w- did I do something wrong? Is something wrong with him? W- what's going on with Sawyer that that would happen? But then I realized that that's, that's always happening, not just in Sawyer, but also in me. I mean, I'm not turning around and reaching for my dad's thighs anymore, and neither are you, I'm assuming, but like we are all still looking to find an echo chamber that will tell us that we are right. We're all still looking for other people who look at the world just like we do. We're all still looking for that safe and secure space where the like recognizes like and we can feel at home. We're all still placing those 10 calls to the people who are just like us. So I thought about this more and more this past week, I realized that contrary to what our Facebook feeds might say and what the headlines might read, the alt-right does not have exclusive rights to xenophobia. We are all suffering from this socially transmitted disease. We are all scared of strangers. We are all fearful of the other. Consciously and subconsciously, we are resisting those that we do not understand, that we do not know. We are still clinging to this idea that different means dangerous. We're running in the opposite direction every time we see somebody that is different. It's easy when we think about things like xenophobia as belonging only to the extreme side of things and only manifesting in the extreme kinds of places at KKK rallies and other places of that sort. But might I suggest to you that this deeply dehumanizing mechanism that is embedded in all of us who are human is not just showing up at KKK rallies, it's also showing up at your local activities. Let me show you what I mean. Is that volume working, Patty? That'd be ideal. You can take a moment. I will concern it over. Just let me know. Let's just say
1: this is you. You're the big red person. All these people around you are just the people that you come in contact with. Some are people that you're friends with. Some are just, you know, the the checkout person at the grocery store. Everyone has a moral circle. And all that means is that the people that are most central to you there are going to get your most love and are the people that you're gonna be nicest towards. Okay, how many of you here have waited tables? So you guys know what misery that is. I have waited tables also. Imagine a friend, a family member, somebody you really care about is going to start waiting tables. They go through the whole training process. You get a group of people together, you go, you sit in their section, you're all excited first night and they come over and they are just sweating bullets, right? What do you say to them? Oh, don't, don't worry about us. Don't worry about us. Don't even worry about, we don't need any drinks. I don't even like water. It's fine. We're fine. I don't even like this. An hour later, they come over and take your order. You ordered steak in front of you is cod. It's great, you love cod, cod's terrific. We're gonna eat this, this is gonna be great. And then what do you do at the, over, at the end of the night? You overtip them, don't you? You overtip them. Now, imagine that same scenario and you have no idea who this server is. And they come and you know what, you ordered Coke Zero and this tastes like Diet Coke. So you stop making eye contact with these people, you start to do that mental math of the tip going down, down, down. I'm not gonna even look at this person. You know, this this is ridiculous. We were paying for a good time. What is this? Two different types of behavior from us for two different people. One is your mom, one is your friend, one is your brother, the other one isn't. But the other one's somebody's mom, the other one's somebody's friend, the other one's somebody's brother. Why do we justify two different types of behavior for people that we come in contact with? We show kindness to our kind, meaning the people that are inside that circle are generally going to be people that you think are your kind. Ethnicity, background, financial status, age, orientation, family member, skill set, you name it, these are the people that I am going to give my most love to. Just imagine with me, how different would your world be if you just expanded your moral circle? What if all of a sudden the people in your church were known for treating other people in their society like family? What would that do to you? What would that do to your church? What would that do to your life and your heart?
0: What would that do to you? What would that do to your church? What would that do to us? Peter Singer and his model he talks about this very thing. We identify our kin and then we are kind to our kind. It is not a mistake that kindness and kin share the same semantic root because the expectation is that it is our kin that set the limits for how far our kindness will go. I I was over at a friend's house on Friday night. We were watching the basketball game and as you'd expect, my friend at one point turned to me and wanted to talk about Genesis 1 and the fall and talked to me about when we were evicted out of Eden. So I thought that's yeah, of course, let's do that right now. This is the perfect time to have that conversation. I'm just trying to enjoy myself. But he asked questions about like is it in our DNA sin? Like are we are we are we just prone to fall? Are we prone to fall apart? Like how does the, how does we trace back to the garden what's going on in our lives, in our world, in our country today. How do we make sense of that whole thing? And I said, listen, I don't I don't know. I don't know what to tell you about what happened at the very beginning. I don't know if what happened in the garden was a historical event or poetry or parable. I just do not know much about how the fall came to be. What I do know, though, is that the fall is always happening. I wasn't there for Adam and Eve, but I see it in me and mine. I've watched my two older boys moved from being in the presence of strangers where they felt secure and safe to now being in the presence of strangers and feeling scared and scattered. I've seen that spirit of philia being replaced by something like phobia. Stranger anxiety, innocent, natural part of our psychological development, deeply insidious, the root of all evil, the parent behind every ism that is out there today. Every vision that we have of loving our neighbor is cut short by this stranger anxiety. By this fear of those who are not in our moral circle. I think that this is what Jesus is trying to free us from. If you go back to the text, the one that comes across as hard. When Jesus turns towards the crowd in Luke 14... And he tells them that if you want to take my story seriously, if you want to make your way all the way to Jerusalem with me, then you need to hate your mom and your dad and everybody in between. Jesus is not talking about actually emotionally hating your parents. He is not talking about a subtraction of love, but rather a subjugation of their loyalties. And let me try to explain. In Hebrew thought at this time, two terms were often paired together in juxtaposition to show preference to one over the other. So hypothetically, if I were around at this time and I said something to you like, you know what, I, I, I love the beach, I hate the ocean. Now I'm not actually hostile towards the Rocky Mountain range, I just would probably take a trip to the Bahamas over the two. That's what's being said here. Jesus is not saying to you that you need to... Uh, restrain your love for your people. He is saying you cannot restrict your love to your people. He's not saying to abandon your moral circle. He's saying to expand it. Make it wider so that others can find a way in. Can find a way into your circumference of care and concern. Are we letting people find their way in? Jesus when he said this, my hunch is that the people understood exactly what he was saying because they had just seen him do this very thing. At the beginning of Luke 14, there is this moment where Jesus is having a meal at a Pharisee's home and as the wine is being poured, the Pharisees are trying to size him up. Now, for those of you unfamiliar, the Pharisees were a separatist movement. They were a people that came into power during turbulent times And they were fueled by this idea that we are good and they are bad. We are pure and they are impure. We are the ones who finally figured it out and they are the hot mess on the side. That is how the Pharisees, and that's an attractive idea still today. We haven't lost that today. They're having a meal at this Pharisee's home. And as the wine is being poured, a man limps in from the side. He's one of the impure. He's one of the castoffs. He's one of the unworthies. His body is swollen with drops, and he limps towards Jesus, and at every step that he takes towards Jesus, the Pharisees lean back. They cross their arms. They crease their brows. Jesus, though, he leans forward. The text tells us that he takes the man, he heals the man, and then he sends the man on his way. But then Jesus turns back to the table where the Pharisees are sitting, and he asks them a question that I think he is still asking us today. He says to the Pharisees, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. In other words, if that waitress was your sister or your brother, would you be as fed up as you are right now? If that man with the red hat on at the rally was your dad or your grandfather or your grandmother, would you dismiss his value in stories so quickly as you do right now? If that child being separated at the border was your child, would you still have the audacity to talk about the immigration system before actually pausing to weep? And our baby has been lost. Jesus is saying, can you see that stranger that just limped in as your own son? Because everything changes when you do. This week in our city, I hope we're aware of this, we had 50 overdoses. City of Minneapolis, that's an all-time high. Unprecedented for us. Now, had I been studying any other material, I might have brushed it off. Bummer, that sucks. Let's hope for better. But then I hear Jesus' question saying, wait a second, if that was your brother that overdosed, if that was your friend that overdosed, he asked the question because that is my brother. That is my friend. That is my sister that overdosed. Do we have the eyes to see all people Do we have the courage to follow Jesus' vision, to strip the world of strangers? Instead of building walls, we extend tables. That is the genius of Christianity in its most purest form. The spirit of Christ is antithetical to the spirit of the tribe. This is why our foundational text is not God so loved my world, but God so loved the world. Is what would it look like, practically thinking, for us to actually not think strange or danger every time we come into the path of somebody that we do not know or somebody that we do not understand? What would it look like to engage with them the way that Jesus calls us to? There's probably a lot of different answers that we can give, but what I do know is that whenever it happens, the world is shocked. It's the stories that always go viral. This was shared 131,000 times. This woman held another woman's crying child for the whole duration of a flight, and the world kept passing it along saying, can you believe that that happened? Somebody extended kindness beyond their kind. Local story. A mosque in Faribault heard about a Christian family in need, somebody that is not inside their moral circle and yet said, those are our people. That family is our family, and we will do something about it. And they did something about it. Or there was on the news last month. Three young men go out to dinner, and they see an elderly lady sitting by herself, and they go over to her table, and they ask, can we share this meal with you? And they've proceeded to do it a few more times since. Or this one right here. Travis Rudolph, wide receiver, Florida State. One of the things I think that keeps us from being kind and going out of our way to love on those that we do not know is because we don't believe that it will actually make a difference. What what does it actually do? It's not going to change the trajectory. It's not going to fix a polarized country. What's it actually going to do to be kind in these small acts of kindness? Well, I'll I'll give you a behind-the-scenes glimpse into what it will do. This photo was shared by this boy's mother. And she wrote this. Several times lately, I have tried to remember my time in middle school. Did I like all my teachers? Do I even remember them? Do I have, did I have many friends? Did I sit with anybody at lunch? Just how mean were those kids really? I mean, I remember one kid on the bus called me Tammy Faye Baker because I started awkwardly wearing eyeliner in the sixth grade. I remember being tough and calling him a silly name back. But then I also remember crying when he went away. I do remember middle school being scary and hard. And now that I have a child starting middle school, I have feelings of anxiety for him. And they can be overwhelming if I let them. Sometimes I'm grateful for his autism. That sound, might sound like a strange thing to say, but in some ways I think, I hope, it shields him. He doesn't seem to notice when people stare at him when he flaps his hands. He doesn't seem to notice that he doesn't get invited to birthday parties anymore. He doesn't seem to mind if he eats lunch alone. It's one of my daily questions for him, was there a time today that you felt sad? Who did you eat lunch with today? Sometimes the answer is a classmate, but most days it's nobody. Those are the days I feel sad for him. But again, he doesn't really seem to mind. He is this super sweet child who always has a smile on his face and a hug in his arms for everybody that he meets. On this day, a friend of mine sent this beautiful picture to me, and when I saw it with the caption, Travis Rudolph is eating lunch with your son, I replied, who is Travis Rudolph? (laughs) And he said, FSU player. Immediately, I started weeping. The tears were streaming down my face. Travis Rudolph, a wide receiver at Florida State, and several other players visited my kids' school today. I'm not sure what exactly made this incredibly kind man share a lunch table with my son, but I'm happy to say that it will not soon be forgotten. For this is one day that I didn't have to worry if my sweet boy ate lunch alone because he sat across from somebody who is a hero in many people's eyes. Travis Rudolph, thank you so much. You gave this mama... An exceedingly good amount of joy and you have made me your fan for life. Paul writes to the early Christians, please do not be conformed to the tribalistic patterns of this world. Don't play that game. You don't need a loser in order for you to be a winner. You don't need a them in order for you to find an us. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Pray with me. God, give us courage to recognize the Ellens in our midst, the kids who are eating lunch by themselves. Give us courage, Lord, to break past our phobias and our fears, our tribalistic ways that we turn away from those in need of love. Jesus, you say that we are one family. One family. That's all we are. Give us eyes to see that this is so. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's children we say together. Amen.
2: As Matt was talking about how Jesus is calling us to this broader sense of kindness. I thought about how Jesus lived it out. Not just in who he chose to eat a meal with and who he chose to heal and when. But um, I thought about this meal, um, the Eucharist, the communion meal, the night before Jesus was betrayed. He was eating dinner with his people when he sort of flipped the script on them and he invited them to a broader sense of who was in and who was out. Because in, in their day, it was Jews and Gentiles. It was God's people and it was everybody else. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he rewrites those definitions. Because all of a sudden we don't have God's people and everyone else, we're all God's people. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's, that's the story that he came to rewrite for us. So the night before Jesus died, he was sitting around a table with his people and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he poured wine into it. And he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. It's the cup of the new covenant. It's not just about what it used to be. See, I am making all things new and everyone's invited. So build a longer table. You're gonna need the room. Get everybody in the doors. Make sure they all know that this is for them. This is the body of Christ broken for you. It's the blood of Christ shed for you. I was thinking, Matt, you and I have shared an appreciation for this quote. The author Glennon Doyle says, be brave because you are a child of God, but be kind because so is everybody else. I think that's a message that we can take with us into this week. We invite you to come to this open table, open to all during the next set of music. You're welcome to come forward. Now that we're in our summer groove, we're gonna go down to two lines. So we'll have servers here on both sides. If you are looking for gluten-free, you will find them on the left side, your left. Emily Trappe said it's gluten, because it has an L in it. Yeah, on the left side. That's good, right? Now you all remember it. Okay, gluten, uh, gluten-free on the left side. Um, would you stand with me as we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to say, saying, our God,